Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about the real estate market and the people connected by it. We seek to empower our listeners to make informed decisions while providing context for the real estate world around them. We hope that with every episode, you become a little more knowledgeable and a lot more curious. On this episode of the Rennie Podcast, we have a very special guest joining us today. With over four decades of experience in the real estate industry, Rennie's Executive Director, Tracy McTavish, is joining us for a special conversation that will give everyone listening an intimate glimpse into Tracy, who is affectionately known as T-Mac around the office. Tracy is known as someone who has an open-door policy, who you can talk to about anything in life, from career guidance to parenthood, to music and sports. For as long as I've been at Rennie, which is almost 15 years, I have known to count on Tracy for his knowledge, wisdom, and his charm that always lights up the room. And I cannot wait to get started. So welcome, Tracy, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I, that sounded pretty impressive. I wish that was all true. But it we'll, is we'll true. Okay. It is very impressive, and it is very true. So we have lots of questions to ask you today, and I'm super excited. Um, at the very end, we will have uh, a quick round of our own real estate advisors who have some questions for you. But let's get started on just the 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 basics of everything is, you know, basically, who is who is Tracy, and, and what is it that you do? Okay. Um, and just before we start, I should I, be really clear. You can ask me anything. I may not answer it, but you can ask me anything. So, <laughs> I love that. Um, who am I? I, I, st- I was licensed in on June 1st, 1980. Uh, you can do the math. I was 21 years old. That means I'm 62 today. Um, this is my birthday, but it's 62 years old. It, it's um, been a pretty straight trajectory for me. I've been in real estate the whole time. I went to BCIT, came out of there with a diploma, got UBC, got a diploma out of there in Milland, uh, went right into real estate, followed my mom, who was a phenomenal realtor on the North Shore, taught me tons. And like a, a young 22-year-old, I didn't really understand at the time how much she was impacting my career and my trajectory and she did a tremendous job. She lived till she was 97. She's just an awesome mom. Wow. Um, it, it just, I just enjoyed the career all the way through. It's, it's a great industry. Uh, it evolved into me moving around a little bit from the North Shore to the West Side. And eventually, the office I was working on the West Side, I bought into the office and I managed it for, in the end, 10 years. And over that time, we amalgamated other, comp- or other offices uh, in the end, by the time I left, we had put it into 21 offices in that wow. under that umbrella, and it was over 2,000 realtors. And then I moved on and was sort of headhunted to go work at Concord, which I sort of leaned into as a sales position of director of sales that evolved into a five-year tenure there that I exited there as SVP of sales and marketing, and mm-hmm. we saw a lot of homes, and it was really interesting one sidebar i do remember transitioning from from sutton into concord and sitting at my desk at the the office at concord for the first day and looking around going i am so over my ski tips here i have no idea what i've got myself but you know what you you learn very quickly and you overcome your concerns and your fears and it worked out really well and then i got headhunted again uh, out of Concord by a, a developer, and I went to Bob, who's been a friend of a close friend of mine since 1992, and said to Bob, "You know, I'm thinking of moving over to this company. What do you think?" And he goes, "No, come work with me. We'll have some fun. We got lots of business." And I'm like, "Really? That wasn't the point of this conversation." And 
the nice part of that story was we met and we discussed the, the complexities of transitioning and what it was going to mean to both of us. And at the time when I shook Bob's hand, we hadn't talked about money. And Bob said, well, hang on, before we shake hands, mm-hmm. let's talk about money. I said, no, that's a story that I want to walk through life with going. I agreed to join here and I had no idea I was going to get paid. And so we started <laughs> that path. And the day I started, and there's a whole other story to that, but um, I had to give notice and it took me a year to get away from Concord because Terry Huey, the the principal at Concord, wouldn't let me go. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a whole other rabbit hole. We won't go down. Um but when I joined and that first day, Bob said, well, what's your title? I said, I, I don't know. I don't care. He goes, you're the president. I'm like, okay, here we go. So 18 years later, here I am doing a podcast talking about me. I love that. I love that story. And so, you know, you've shared that you have so much experience within the industry. Um, you've been with Rennie for about 18 years now. What, at what point in your career did it make you feel like, you know what, I've, I've made it? Uh, or have you gotten to that point yet? Yeah, you know, I, you know I, I think you become complacent if you think you've, whatever that means. And I, I know what you mean by saying you've made it. I can say from a contextually, when I was selling real estate, which I did for 12 or 14 years, um, the day that I didn't have to sell another home to, to put food on the table was when I became very comfortable with myself, uh, with my career, with all my clients. And my career actually accelerated at that point. Once there was no financial strain on me, mm-hmm. then you just you, you just so connected to what you're doing for these people, you know, with the service you're providing, you're protecting them from the pitfalls of what real estate involves. And it just, it went stratospheric from there for me. And, it, and after that, there was probably a time at Concord where I thought, okay, I'm being promoted here, I'm in senior management, I'm sitting on a table of very intelligent individuals. How do I get here? But I'm here. And we were making, if not tens of millions, hundreds of million dollar decisions uh, mm-hmm. based on, at some point at, back then, it was gut and just knowledge that you garnered without the world that we live in today, which is so stats driven. So at some point during Concord, I, I guess I was like, I think I got this. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable. And yeah, it's, I, once I got to Rennie, I didn't have to prove myself. I was so comfortable coming in. It was a, in such an inviting environment. There was all of, I'm going to say 14 of us or 16 of us. It was pretty cool. Yeah. And look where we're at now. Look where we're at now. A lot of people. <laughs> yeah, definitely way more than 14. So are you able to share with us some career or industry philosophies that you live by? Yeah, I mean, some of it's going to sound pretty trite. Hard work always wins out. You know, it, it, I just had a, I've always had a, a high work ethic. I wasn't afraid of working long hours. And as much as I have uh, a, a very um, fragile ego, I could, when I, I said this before, when I was, when cold calling just was not in my world of selling mm-hmm. real estate, I couldn't take the rejection. I'm just not that sound in my ego. And so I just found a way to to move forward in a career. And I just knew that once I engaged with people, I was very much a relationship seller. I could, I could maintain relationships and they flourished. And the vast majority of my business would come from just previous business. And I remember one day when I was at Sutton up in Carisdale and I was selling, and I was at that time probably 
top third of the pack of 180 realtors. They certainly wasn't the top. I remember the receptionist coming in one day and saying, you know, you get more calls than anybody else in this company. Like, I have 180 people. You get way more calls. And at the time, it didn't really resonate. And I thought afterwards, that was how I got there. It was having all these relationships, which you kind of alluded to in the intro. Like, I've always had this open door policy. I I get along with people. I, I love now the world I live in today, that if I can leave a room and leave them smiling, I've I've accomplished something. goes back to what you've discussed with us prior to this podcast was the power of the collective versus mm-hmm. the individual. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is something you really strongly believe in and live by. Yeah. And, you know, Rennie, I'm probably on the Kool-Aid, but, you know, I truly believe that all the, the basis of these business models, the advisors and Rennie work from is data-based. And mm-hmm. we have such a massive support system. I'm not going to go into all the, the silos of what we provide in support of the advisors, but it's extensive. And having been in the industry for over 40 years, it's, in my estimation, it's the most elaborate and profound support system that anybody could ask for when it comes, aside from the project marketing side of what mm-hmm. we do that also adds to the advisor's world. There's just so much opportunity to be intelligent and not to just come in with a standard form, with standard uh, soundbite from what everybody uses. There's so much more depth to our environment. And it, you're doing yourself such a disservice if you are an advisor with Rennie and not taking advantage of all these tools. It's, it's, you, you won't miss them until if you were to ever step away and then you're going to realize. And then that's Bob's philosophy is he just wants to provide a company environment where people enjoy what they, they do here and the day they leave, if they ever chose to leave, they look back fondly and go, wow, I maybe sort of left something behind that I'm not getting somewhere else. And what would you say is the right character or personality to be a realtor, a successful realtor? I've been asked that a lot and I firmly believe there isn't one. And the reason why I say that, it's easy to be, you know, you can just go down the the avenue of being this gregarious, gregarious, outgoing person that is just, you know, very people-oriented, fearless of none. Yeah, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. They they probably have a leg up on some. I would say some of the better realtors are the more compassionate, really heartfelt, um, sometimes introverts that have mm-hmm. to get outside of their comfort zone. And you don't want to live in a, an environment where you're not comfortable. But I, you know, I would argue that when I was 12 years old, I would, I would be defined as an introvert. Well, 50 years later, I've done, I couldn't tell you the number of times I've done a public speaking engagement. Mm-hmm. Am I comfortable doing them? Today I am. 30 years ago, frightened, like t- t- sweaty palm sweat down my back, anything but. I, yeah. I'm that Jerry Seinfeld. I'd rather be in the <laughs> casket than give the eulogy. And you just overcome it. And and I don't think there's one type of personality that will succeed. I just think it comes back to work ethic, focus, support system. Uh, I wouldn't be here today without my wife, Marianne. She just, she got me a long way. Sorry, getting emotional. Oh, I Oops. love it. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> and you know what? That's why it was one of our goals. Make Tracy you did cry. It. And we made Five it. Five minutes in, I'm crying already. But you know, I love the fact that you're crying because you mentioned your wife. Mm-hmm. 
uh, about that support system. And that's really touching. Yeah. And it's along with our kids and it, it's, it's a real, real estate's a really hard road to hoe on your own. And I couldn't imagine in this COVID environment. And one of the first things as senior management here that I said when COVID first hit and we were strategizing for all our staff was the first question I asked was, we need to identify of our 110 staff and advisors of 180 or whatever they were at the time who were single. I want to know all the people who are single and I want to make sure that we reach out to these people and find out they're mm-hmm. okay because this is going to be a dark time and they're going to be on their own and we can't be reliant on them to make sure they're okay and happy. And Mental health is such a huge issue and we as a company identified that and made sure it was everybody's functioning at a high level and was safely doing it. That's great. And, you know, I, I like the fact that you guys were able to identify the ones that were single and didn't leave them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, you did talk in the uh, previously in our conversation about female influence in the real estate mm. industry. I really want to dive into this a little bit. I want to get your take on females and the influence that they have in this industry or do you think they have any yeah as you know it's mainly a male-dominated industry it's a great conversation and and, you know bob and i have had numerous conversations about this and it's pretty evident our industry real estate development is pretty Mm male-dominated and it is what it is um and i'm speaking to real estate it arguably could be widgets i don't know that it really changes too much from industry to industry but, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to garner a lot of close relationships, male and female, in this industry. And I'm going to be really candid. We're, we've got a lot of alpha males running around, running companies, which arguably is a requirement of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would tell you that today, my closest relationships and lunches I enjoy the most are with my f- female colleagues in the industry, people like Elva Kim and Dana Samus and Kathy Grant. These are really really plugged in individuals they happen to be female um, in this case but they are just such smart executives and they bring a whole nother dimension to in this case real estate that I think it's lost and it's I don't know if it's just society is so much harder on the female side of executive but I think our industry will serve very well to have more of those ladies influence at a higher level. And they are high up in the chart, but there's more of them. And the challenge is, I think, is that you see really talented female individuals that aren't identified to like in their th- their 40s. And they've mm-hmm. had to prove themselves longer than that the, 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 the typical male. And I think we have a responsibility to identify these diamonds in the rough for lack of a better term when they're like 28 or 32 so they have a longer Mm -hmm. runway and they can have more impact in this industry longer why do you think that males have the upper hand in in this uh particular situation a a lot of it's societal i just think it's tradition that it, it needs to be broken um I think it's a harder road. I, I think to mm-hmm. be a successful female in any real significant industry is much harder. And you have to prove yourself. You get labeled in, differently than a guy would be labeled as being an aggressive. You get labeled something far worse than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't break it by myself. It's got to be something much bigger than all of us. And I think we're getting there. It, it, it's just going to take time. And 
as these women prove themselves to be such fantastic executives, it will kick the doors over for way more. So Tracy, tell us about your current position right now at Rennie as the executive director. What does that role entail? I'm here on the board to give guidance to this company as a whole. My quote-unquote fatherly image and position helps guide Greg and Jason and all the people I've talked about. It also helps Chris and Bob and be a guiding light for them because they may be getting off track at times and I can be that sounding board Mm -hmm. and maybe they're so generous as individuals that sometimes I have to reel them back in. And so I'm, uh, for lack of a better term, I'm the bad cop. I, I, (laughs) I try to keep them in line because they just don't want to, they want to please everybody and the world doesn't work that way. So I'm a bit of a cultural ambassador. I'm a mentor and ambassador to our advisors. You talked about open door. Mm-hmm. I, the funny thing is I've always had that open door policy and it's unusual for my door to be closed. And some people take advantage of it to their benefit, which I th- is fantastic. I don't think much about it. I just think it's something that I'm, I need to do and most people should do. And some people I think are still intimidated by it, which finds I get off, I caught off guard by that. Like I'm, I'm a little, I don't read my own press clippings. I'm not comfortable doing this, talking about myself. So we mm-hmm. do this and it is what it is. But I, I'm taken aback at times when people are like, oh, I didn't feel comfortable. I thought I was imposing. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that's what I'm here for. I'd love it. If I can make your life better and smooth the road a bit for you, like, awesome. Like, mm-hmm. let's go. Like, bring up some tea and let's have a conversation. So that's where my path is today is, is to certainly give an overreaching guide to the company, which will go on for a long time. I'm just not in the day-to-day boardrooms. And if if they need me, I'm there. And there's been times when the the different leaders of a file might say, we could just use your horsepower just so they know it's been anointed, that you're watching. Mm -hmm. I probably don't add anything to the boardroom, but my presence gives it validation that they're Mm -hmm. on the right path. And I'll take that. I, I'm I'm happy if they believe I'm validating something to validate as long as it's true. So let's talk about Tracy outside of work. You are a father of two that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, I have scared all of you in this company that have young kids to remind you that parenting does not get any easier. As much as they become, a, you know, self-sustained and they can run around and fend for themselves, I find the hardest parenting is arguably when your kids are in their 20s. They're adults. They've got opinions. They're intelligent. You can't tell them to go and clean up the room like when they were eight years old. And it's a whole different skill set. I, I, I pride myself on both Michael and Natalie, who are now 30 and 27. Um, I coached them in a lot of sports for a long time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I was somewhat of a an accomplished athlete in some form along the way, mm-hmm. but I got way more joy and, and, and pleasure out of watching my, my children um, succeed in sports and having a team have great fun and success on, on a playing field. It was just so joyful to watch. Um, they're just great kids, very different, um, but they, it, it, parenting it's, it's again, it's trite. It never goes away, and there's never a time when your kids don't need guidance at some point somewhere, and it can be in the strangest places. So, 
uh, Marianne and I have done, I think, a really good job because I look at our kids and go, they're good kids. So I think we did something right. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's hard. It's really hard. And, you know, you talk about COVID and in this past summer, the, the, the world around us was melting and now it's it's flooding and it's a tough world. Um, Trump and all he accomplished, for the most part, not so great. Um, I think he, he changed the globe. He allowed people to speak out with their little voices that most people wouldn't voice mm-hmm. in public. And I think it's changed society and it's challenged kids to understand what's right and what's wrong. And it's just, it's not going to get easier. So yeah, I, I got two great kids and if I talk, I'm going to cry. So I'm not going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> cry number two. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that aspect of what you're mentioning about as they get older, it gets harder. And mm-hmm. I think I'm just barely reached that point right now. My kids are, are still very young, um, eight and under. So I'm just slightly reaching that part. And I still feel like right now it is quite difficult, but like you said, I can still at least kind of have some control mm-hmm. over what they do and what they listen to. But is there ever an aspect where you feel like the way you speak to your kids now and teach your kids is kind of similar to possibly a way that you would talk to our advisors when you're trying to guide them in their career? For sure. Um, the irony is, and I'll, I'll use Michael as my example, my 30-year-old son, is that he will be hesitant to come to me for a business, for business advice mm-hmm. because I'm his dad. And he knows that lots of people come to me and ask my opinion of things. And I just get a sense, he's never said that, but I just get a sense that he's he's got to prove to me and to him that he can do it on his own, which is a whole other dynamic of the family. But I find it ironic that there's times when I probably could guide him better than he, in the direction that he's going, but he's got to find that on his own. Mm-hmm. And, and just to circle back for a second, you know, if, if there's a few rules I, I would make for, for kids and for parents is I was always a team sport guy and I found great um, attributes and value in being in a team environment. I think you learn just so many life skills that you can apply to the business world, to your family life. And I've, I told parents at a very young, when our kids were at a very young age, because typically I would take on Michael or Natalie's team, in this case, soccer at like when they were eight and I'd sit the parents down and say, okay, first of all, little Billy or little, uh, Sally are not going to represent our country in soccer. But <laughs> our goal here is to make them enjoy soccer until they graduate the communal side until they're 18, which is basically high school. That's when the community programs stop. And I said, as we, as a, a group can keep these kids engaged and have fun in soccer and in this case soccer um and we make it through till grade 12 we won mm-hmm. and so it worked i would tell you that 90 percent of natalie's teammates at the age of 10 9 or 10 were still together at grade 12 uh michael had and and natalie's soccer program was goal or was was bronze which is hair nail and, and hair bands and makeup. Like they're just there to have fun. And yeah. it, you know, you can instill competitiveness in them and they became very competitive and we accomplished a ton at, even at a, at a bronze level. Michael was the other end of the spectrum, provincial champion, gold level. It was really intense soccer, which I actually enjoyed coaching Natalie's world more than Michael surprisingly, because I was the competitive guy and I don't know, I don't know what the takeaway is there, but my point being, is that I would tell parents that your child really shouldn't have a choice of whether they play or not play if I'm doing a good job coaching until they're 12. 
And it's just a, a, an age I chose, which I felt that if they weren't enjoying themselves in that sport, then they have the right to say no more. But prior to that, if it's a good environment, and unfortunately, all these communal programs are dependent on the coach. And if you don't have a good coach, mm-hmm. you're at the mercy of that. And I tell all parents, get involved. I don't care if you don't know how to skate. I don't care if you don't know anything for a thing about soccer. Pick up the cones. It is so enjoyable to engage that level, to understand all the people they work with or they play with. The kids that, that our children grew up with, I still know them today. And we've talked about this before we came on air. I hug all those guys and they they hug me back. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Let's talk about this hugging though. We were discussing the hugging culture here at Rennie prior to us uh, starting to record. What is this hugging culture? And you know, everybody might feel that it's not normal or shy mm-hmm. a little, away from it a little bit at first, but can you describe to us what this culture is like? It's hard because I get out. I mean, Marianne, my poor wife, she's so politically correct. My just again, context, Marianne's associate Dean out of UBC and it's a very formalized environment Mm -hmm. and it just has, it's, it's a, it's a different world. And it's, she comes to our parties and and our different functions and she's like, this is just, I don't get it. (laughs) She goes, this just seems inappropriate to me. I'm like, you just, you just have to take it for what it is. And as we talked about and joked, it is the mainstay of what I think is our culture. And mm-hmm. it is just that it's a it's such a protective environment. It is such a safe environment. There's no creepiness. There's no icky. It's just, yeah. it, it, it is, and it's so hard to explain to somebody on the outside. They just don't get it. And I, I, I learned it here, to be honest. Uh, you know, as much as I'm, I'm, I'm a, I, I'm, I'm an emotional animal. I'll I'll cry in a Coke commercial. Like that's just the way I am. COVID has accelerated that for some reason. Oh, that's like me too. <laughs> so, yeah. So I mean, I, I the, the good news movement on Instagram. I mean, I can't get through two of those segments without crying, looking at my phone about somebody doing a great thing. Anyways, um, the I, I think the biggest struggle we've had as a company is we haven't been able to hug, and that's an overgeneralization. But what really has happened is we lost a little bit of our culture with not being able to walk down the hall, talk to those people, have that three-minute conversation, engage at such a, a close, intimate level that you can't recreate that on Zoom or Google Meet. It doesn't exist. And we proved that within six months of, of going down that path. And so hugging is just our mainstay. And I took it outside of, once I learned it here, I took it outside to, the, and I've got friendships to go back to grade six. And you start hugging, you know, your peers that have known you for since you're in grade six, grade seven, and you're hugging them and they're like, what's going on, man? And I'm like, this is the way it works. I love you. And it just works. Um, you, you get it. And it, it's one of those things. And it's funny. A lot of people that join our company, you see in their little bios when they say, hey, this is who I am. They say, I've heard about this Rennie culture. I, I just so yeah. want to be immersed in this. And it's, and maybe that's the mystique of it is the value in it. It's, mm-hmm. it is just something really special that it's so hard to replicate. And I've been in lots of corporate environments. You, and this is not a slam on Concord. You're not walking around the call hallways of Concord hugging, you know, another executive. They would just go like, what's going down, dude? You having a, mer- are you having a breakdown? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's Rennie and I, I love it. I'm proud of it. You know, we so proudly say that this is Rennie's culture. 
you know, with the the company growing so large now, it's mm -hmm. over a hundred people in the office and over about about two hundred advisors. Mm -hmm. How do you think that we were able to maintain this culture from being such a small company at first, you know, when entering at about fourteen people to now having this many people? People don't like change. It's human nature. I think our biggest challenge has been the old guard. The people who have been here a long time mm -hmm. are kind of jealous of having to give it up because you just it's like. If you're parenting and you have two kids, it's a much different dynamic than if you have eight kids. Like you're spreading mm -hmm. it over eight people. And it's the same dynamic here. It is a real, um, it's a lot of work. And I focus now with my new role, I focus a lot more on it and try to be more inclusive. And you just, you go in a very circuitous route to the bathroom and you talk to more people and you talk yeah. and stop. And we go for lunch instead of going with two people, you go with five people or six people. We, the, the infamous new town at noon. Yeah. It's the, it's, you cover so much ground. I mean, one of the, talk about culture. One of the great things about Rennie is we have kind of this, you send out the text at 1130 going, I got a free lunch. Who wants to go to Newtown? And it's just like, bing, bing, bing. And seven people walk over at noon and you have this great life conversation about anything. Yeah. And it is so engaging and you come back with a smile on your face and then you all disseminate that goodwill to, you know, 10 more people that are in the office you're talking to. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool place. That is true. And I, I can say that, you know, just my own experience being at the company for so long, and I could say that I haven't been working at very many companies in the past, but just ex explaining my experience mm -hmm. to other people, they don't get it. They don't get it. And no. on top of that, they're like, this is not normal. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bit creepy to other people because yeah, it's out of context. That um, that you like your coworkers so much and yeah. you want to hang out with them afterwards and you go and have lunch and you do things outside of the office and you can talk about things that you normally wouldn't talk about. Yeah. Um, and so it really is a testament to how great the company is and how the culture has just really been able to, you know, maintain itself and hopefully stay down that path. Yeah. And again, before we went on air here, we were talking about like the proverbial Vegas trip and yes. the fact that we have, we have a hierarchy in this company. There's people at the top and there's people that, you know, pyramids down into, to more bodies and different titles. But I have taken great pride for the last almost two decades of when all these different trips we went on. Whether I, at a dinner, I sat beside a receptionist or somebody new to the company or somebody at a very low level of seniority, whether I sat beside Bob, it didn't really matter. And there was no agenda. There was never like, okay, make sure these place cards are set up. So I'm not, it, and that's, I take great pride in that. I didn't pay attention to that until I realized it was going on, that it was just, it was almost like, pick it out of a hat. You're, you're sitting here, you know, Justin, you and I have sat at a table, you know, over dinner and done tequila shots and <laughs> yeah. laughed. And it's yes, we like, have. and it's like, this is all good. I mean, there's boundaries. And, and this we, is normal too. Yeah. And and <laughs> it, it never seems to come off the rails. We've we've yeah. we've been, you know, knocking we've been very, very fortunate. We all have a governor that is sort of within. We know where we can go and where we can't go. And I can't think of too many times, if any, where I, you know, it kind of got away from us mm -hmm. on these trips. And that I take great pride in that. Yeah. We always come back with really great experiences and a yeah. lot of, a lot of funny, funny memories. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of laughs. So 
So we've talked about past Tracy, um, current Tracy. Let's talk a little bit about future Tracy. Where do you see yourself going in the next little bit? What does that look like for you? Are you, you've mentioned traveling and all those other things. Is that in, in, in plans in your near future? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be an ongoing responsibility to Rennie for a number of years to mm-hmm. come. It will be in fits and starts. It won't be on a daily basis over time. For now, it is more or less a daily thing. Um, but both Marianne and myself have worked really, really hard, and we've probably foregone some traveling. We've traveled extensively with our kids for the most part because it's always a great you know, exposure to the world, mm-hmm. it's life lessons. But there's so much more to be had. There's the proverbial African safaris of the world and heading to places that you didn't just didn't get a chance to go to. So there's some travel coming up. Marianne's going to be retiring shortly as well um, in a different form than me. I worry about her because she works at such an incredible level of responsibility that for her to stop outright, I think it's going to be a challenge for her and I'm going to have to support her in that manner, which I haven't quite got my head around that. We'll figure that out when we get there. But, um yeah, it's it, there's the proverbial travel. We've accomplished a lot. There's not a lot of boxes to check for us. It's just to enjoy a little bit slower pace, uh, read a bit more. I took guitar lessons when I was in my 20s. I'll probably pick up a guitar again and try and figure that out and then get frustrated and give up. <laughs> um, but th- I'm going to go back and play some golf. I haven't played a lot of golf for the last 10 years. If I played three times in a year. That's a, that's a lot. Consider I have a golf membership. That's really dumb. Um, Marianne's a golfer, so we can... Do, it's just nothing out of the ordinary. Um, I, I, I've got lots of things I just want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And certainly do, probably more things with our kids. Our, I'm, we're very fortunate. Our kids like to travel with us. I could be sarcastic and say, well, they get to come for free. Why wouldn't you? But they walk hand in hand. They they enjoy every part of it. They're never sort of off on their own. Mm-hmm. We work as a unit. It's so much fun. It's engaging. We were growing up. We were a ski family at Whistler. If again back to sports, um, it was very engaging to be the four of us on a chair every weekend, buzzing around a mountain, getting fresh air, exercise. Lots of family time coming back, fireplace, and it just my daughter to this day just loves the concept of Christmas and Whistler and fireplace because it's just such a great memory for her, and she still to this day cherishes it and 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 covets it. So, yeah, we'll see. We're going to see where it's going to go. I, I I've been asked to do other things within the industry. It doesn't really interest me. I, it just reminded me a weird sidebar when I, this is going back in our conversation here, sorry, I'm going back. I don't know how you're going to edit this, but um, when I, the the first day I joined with Bob, which would have been like January 3rd, I couldn't even tell you, 2004, three, something like that. Anyways, um, a headhunter called me and he wrote me nameless and he said, you didn't tell me you were in play. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, Yeah. I've been looking for a guy for six months. Your name has come up three different times from three different people in the industry. I've got a development company that wants you to come and basically run their company. I said, who is it? He goes, I can't tell you. I said, but they're a major player. I said, first of all, I've been on the job like four hours. I'm not going anywhere. I, I'm, I said, I'm not going to tell you what I just went through for the last year to get away from Concord. Bob's a good friend. I'm standing by my word. I have no wish to jump ship and it it was 
I guess you ask, you know, when do you figure you made it? That was probably a moment where I go, okay, I've impressed somebody along the way. Mm -hmm. At least three people thought I was capable of something. And I've stayed loyal, and I've said this a number of times. Uh, When I joined here almost 20 years ago, I said to anybody that would listen, this will be my last job. This is the last place I'm going to work. And I knew that back then. And it wasn't because I was close to my financial barrier where I'm like, it was just I just knew. And I think a lot of people who work here kind of know that. Like, there's a lot of people who've been here a lot longer than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they've been in it. I'm sure they've been asked. And we keep winning. So it's it's awesome. Bob's just, he's created a, a fantastic environment. So let's, on the topic of Bob, let's talk about your first impression of Bob. Mm. I would love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, so... 1982, so there you go, 40 years ago, um, met through a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Kirk Taylor, who to this day is a very, very good friend of mine, a very close friend. Um, Kirk and Bob worked, I think, at United Realty at the time. I was on the west side at Sutton. We just had lunch, and Bob was just one of these guys who you kind of knew. He was a big producer, and and I've said this before. When I met him 40 years ago, 41 years ago, he hasn't changed. His hair's shorter and grayer, um, but he's he he was just that guy. And people, after we became close friends very quickly, you know, then he became this guy that was like revered, Bob, Bob Rennie. People going like, you know him? I said, of course I know him. He's a friend of mine. What's he like? I said, it's kind of like our culture. He's hard to describe, but when you meet him, you get it. Yeah. I said, within 10 minutes, maybe less, you walk away going, I got it. And that's Bob. And I think that's, what you can attribute his success to is he's a, such a sincere guy. He's an incredibly smart guy, incredibly funny guy. And he is just this so well-rounded individual that is so heartfelt that gets taken advantage of to his fault, uh, to a fault, and it's not his fault. Um, and he hasn't changed. And that's what I take great pride in. Like He, he has had tremendous success financially and otherwise, uh, notoriety or any way you want to describe success, friendships. Um, and he is exactly the same as he was 40 years ago. And he has created three fantastic kids. He's maintained a relationship with Mieko, his ex-wife. Um, he is just a rare human being that if you know him, you're a better human being for it. Since we're on the topic of Bob, I mm. wanted to talk about your relationship with Bob. Mm-hmm. So you guys both share a very special relationship with each other. I mm-hmm. would love for everybody that's listening to be able to hear about, get a little bit of a deeper dive into what it's like with the relationship with each other as a mm-hmm. friendship, as partnership, working relationship. Sure. Um, well, in 40 years, I think we've had one, and I'll call it a blow up, and it wasn't that long ago, it was probably, I'm going to say 10, 12 years ago, 10 years ago. And it was over, um, a disagreement on somebody that worked here at the time that I felt was not a great mix and fit. And, and Bob was just of the opinion, like, we have to give it a try. Like we're just being, we're not being inclusive here. And I just was closer to the fire to, to have a better read on it than Bob did. And so it escalated and this is all within 10 minutes, it escalated mm-hmm. to where I'm like, I'm out of here. Like, I don't need this. You'll have my resignation letter, you know, in the, on your desk tomorrow. And it was the night of a Christmas party. So it was obviously December something. And um, 
So I jumped in my car and drove away and blew off some steam and just sort of watched the rain at the windshield. And of course, Bob was phoning me and other people were trying to get a hold of me and I just was, I needed my space. And um, we resolved it within hours. And that was the only time in 40 years that we, and I, outside of that, it's, he is, there's no secret agenda to Bob. There is no secret handshake. Uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from him just as a human being, let alone an executive in the business world. Um, we kind of know we're in step with each other. Now we're like brothers of, of, of sorts because I, I, I still laugh at his stories and, and I, they're honest laughs. They're not just though time to laugh now. They just still make me funny. It still, they're still funny and make me laugh. When Bob recently did the, um, the PDP course for the board about a month or two ago. And, you know, we joked at the beginning of it because Bob goes, you know, my life's been distilled down to three PDPs. And no, Bob, your life's been distilled down to one PDP. It's all it's worth. And that's kind of us. Like it's, um, I remember that line. Yeah. And it's honest. Like we have a very, very honest relationship. I know that he has got my back. In fact, for the last, this will put a, a finer point on our relationship. I would say 30 years ago, long before I ever worked here, I asked Bob if he would be the executor of our, of my will. And, uh, and I, and he said, sure. And he has been ever since. And now that I know his spending habits, it's a bit frightening. (laughs) Um, no. And, and we've never changed it. I don't intend to, but he is, um, he's just such an important person. He's made a huge difference in our family's life. And, um, he is uh, he's a special guy, but I, I don't, to be honest, I don't know him any different than anybody else that knows him well. There's it there there's nothing like deeper than what you see. Like you can go deep with Bob, but there's not a there's not another level where only certain people get to. He's like that with the inner sanctum, but that inner sanctum is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's so funny when you hear people going, oh, and they don't know my relationship with Bob, and they're like, oh yeah, Bob's a good friend of mine. I said, oh yeah. How do you know him? And then you realize that Bob impresses them to believe they're good friends, but they actually barely know him. And that's that's a sign of somebody that's just so engaging and talented in life. That's really funny because I remember just entering into into Rennie years ago and somebody would say something and like they would say, oh, somebody recommended me. And we would say, oh, who? And they're like, oh, he's an FOB. And we're like, oh, what's an FOB? And so now we know. It's like, oh, he's a friend of Bob's. Yeah. Everybody says, oh, I'm a friend of Bob's. And we all know <laughs> what that That's means. That's the curse. How many times do we get calls going, yeah, I'm a friend of Bob's. I need to get a condo. And I know you guys have a lineup. I'm like, oh, my God. Who's, yeah. Just keep, uh, that was one of our golden rules. When we were doing big launches back in the day of lineups, I'm like, just keep Bob away from the lineup because they're going to have a, a second Bob lineup around the corner that yeah. we can't manage. <laughs> <laughs> So let's get to the fun part of the podcast. We had the opportunity to reach out to some of our real estate advisors and gave them an opportunity to ask some questions that they've always probably wanted to know about you. And so we have a list here. And so we just thought that let's let's fire through them and see what Tracy's answer is right off the bat. So the first question is, if you were not in real estate, what would you be doing? So I have two answers to that. One would be if it was the appropriate audience that I had to impress, I truly would say a doctor 
I, <laughs> I just think it would be just so awesome to give back and save lives. And I know it's, that's a bit dramatic, but I just, I think I would have been a good doctor and I think I would have really engaged and enjoyed it and probably specialized in something, but whether I had the discipline to go through all that schooling, another question for the other audience, I tell you, I want to be a rock star <laughs> because I can think of nothing better than, and I could never do it because it's not my personality is to stand on stage and have that immediate reaction to something you do in a performance or otherwise, and just have that adulation just pouring over you. I, I think it'd just be in, so enthralling. I love that answer. <laughs> okay. The next question is, what would be one trait that you think makes a good leader? That's a good question. I mean, I think I've had the ability, either inherently or I've learned it, to read people pretty well. I can go into a boardroom and I get a pretty good sense of the room pretty quick. I think a good leader needs to be able to read the person across from them or mm -hmm. the group that they're in front of. And I think the challenge you have in leadership today is there's a lot of people that are empowered that maybe aren't ready for it, either emotionally or a maturity standpoint. They're probably a young age. And they wield the power in an unruly manner, or they just they're they're not aware of how you know to to walk softly. So a good leader, I think, needs to craft the power you hold carefully, and really be able to just read the person in front of you. And it just can't be done by rote. It just can't be the same for everybody. Everybody's different. If I had to talk to all 109 people in this company. I would probably approach all 109 a little bit differently because they're all different people. Mm -hmm. Some would be close, but for the most part, they're all different. And I think that's good leadership because if you're just coming out of the box and just checking off the, the typical questions, like I, I always said when, um, sorry, this will be rapid fire. Um, you know, when, if you're, if you're in an interview and whoever's interviewing says, what's the last book you read? Just get up and leave. That's just not the culture you want to be working in. That is just so bureaucratic, um, old school, like it's just such a tell to me that that's just not the right environment. Okay. So what would you say is the best trait or a number one trait that makes a good realtor? Self-motivated, hardworking, and really focused. It's so easy to just go down to the beach and pretend mm -hmm. you, and you can actually, you can make a full day of being a realtor and actually accomplish nothing. You can fool yourself and you have to have a real good view of yourself and your ability to be um, relevant and just, it's, it's just such a, it's so easy to get distracted. So if you can keep away from the noise Mm -hmm. and just have that laser beam focus, you will do well in whatever you do. And in this case, it's real estate. But again, it comes back to that that shaking hands. And again, sidebar, here I go again. I just recently went to a groundbreaking a couple weeks ago, and I hadn't seen one of our advisors, Chris Boyd, in a long time. And literally two years through COVID, and he showed up, and I he walked up to me and like, you're way taller than I remember, man. Like, <laughs> you, you, I thought you were shorter. <laughs> it was just one of those weird moments like, this stupid COVID thing just screws everything up. So anyways, I don't know where I was going with that. But so what do you do to take your mind off of the buzz of life? Um, I'm pretty good at getting on a, on a spin trainer and just plugging in and letting it rip for an hour and getting off really wet and just like, 
I, I can I can accomplish a lot. I've got a wonky knee now from all the abuse my body has taken over the years, so I don't run anymore. For me, running was I just miss it so much. It, running was such a thing for me it, to go for a a half hour hour run, whatever it was mm-hmm. back in the day, longer. But um, that was just a real mental cleanse for me. And it, it really reset a lot of things and allowed me to kind of kick a lot of things around. For somebody else, it could just be a walk. Just And just, it, it could be a walk by yourself. It could be a walk with somebody else. But you've got to find that place where you can reset because if you don't reset, it just keeps, spe- it just keeps spooling. And what has kept you motivated in um, such a high-stake business? Initially, it was the competitive nature of, of myself and just wanted to be our company be the best and have the lion's share of the marketplace. As it's evolved and we became that company, you, you kind of pass the baton of sorts. But what I find now, and I, again, I touched on it earlier, is I love bestowing wisdom onto others. And I can remember back in the day um, when I was at Sutton and I was the managing broker, which I feel sorry for you. It's a tough job. <laughs> it's so hard. But I can remember, like I had 180 realtors. I was the only, I was the manager of the office dealing with all of it. And the vast majority of what I did was sort of correcting life's wrongs. It wasn't a lot of realtor questions and how to get me through and navigate through this complicated offer or whatever it was. It was more like life challenges. And I, I kind of realized years in like that is your role like it's it's a it's a life coach of sorts that mm-hmm. is that guiding light that we talked about earlier and i think today that's that's kind of what i i take great pride in is people th- come to me for guidance which i to this day still surprises me i'm like really you you think i can add something to this and invariably i think i do sometimes i walk away going i'm not sure i helped you and they're like of course you did but maybe that's why i'm driven i i, I don't feel like i've really accomplished all I need to accomplish. And I think that's the fear that if, if you get into that mindset, like I've done it all and I, I there's no more boxes to check. I just, you, you, you become complacent and I think life kind of just wanders after that. So speaking of giving vi- guidance, um, what would be the number one advice that you would give to a new realtor? You need to find somebody that, that you respect and a good example, and I'm going to name a name just because it's it's a really obvious example I've said in public before. When Michael first started in, in at Rennie, very early on when he was an advisor, um, Phil Chang of our office had just started. He was probably six or nine months into the business, and he came from a, a hospitality background and, and mm-hmm. high-end rest, uh, hotels. And I said to Michael, if you want to aspire to somebody that's going to be a great realtor, he's not one yet, that guy will be a great realtor. And he evolved into exactly that. I, I would tell anybody that's new to the business is you need to go and poll the audience. I look around, in our case, our office, we've got 180 great advisors. They're all very different. But there's going to be somebody that's going to strike a chord for you that you go like, I really associate with this person. And they may not be of same sex. And ideally, they're not because then you get more out of it. And I just think you go to them and say, I respect the way you've done your business. I respect the way you treat other people and how you act as a human being, I want to emulate you and I want to, I want to be able to have time with you to be a better person, a better realtor. And I don't know any realtor that wouldn't say, let's go. Like, certainly not a Rennie realtor. There'll be others that may not. But uh, I just think you need to lock on to 
a handful or one or two people that can just guide you by their actions and they will guide you because if they can, if they can impress you, they're going to impress the people that you want to be associated with too. So it's not as complicated and it's not reading books. It's anything but, it's like reading a book to to better your golf game and to Mm -hmm. better your golf swing. It doesn't work that way. You read all the books you want. You got to swing a club and somebody's got to stand there and give you guidance on how to do it because you think you're doing it one way and half the time it's not even close to what you think you're doing. So let's take a peek behind the curtain here. Let's ask you this next question, which is what is your most outrageous client request? Um... I, I can tell you the weirdest one was way back when I was like 22, 23, selling in, in North Vancouver. And I was in this offer negotiation. I had a, I had a, a, a difficult a, a, a difficult buyer who wasn't my buyer, but I was the listing agent. And it just so happens it was quite a contentious negotiations you had going back and forth. And both parties are getting kind of pissed off. And it came down to, there was a crack in the toilet seat and they both took their heels in. I'm literally looking at this deal going like, okay. Over toilet seat. Over toilet seat. And so I just went in one day and I got a bought a toilet seat and put a toilet seat on and said to the buyer, the, the seller is fixed the toilet seat. And to the seller, I said, they're waving. They don't need the toilet seat. Like, they don't care. Because they had moved out of the house, it was empty. And it was one of those weird ones where the deal would have collapsed over a cracked toilet seat. And that's just human nature. People get, they, they just yeah. want that deal and they get stuck on the weirdest things. It, it, after all, it's not money anymore. It's just principle and losing face and all that, that stuff. Okay, on a, a little different note here, we had one question that we thought had to be inputted and kept here, um, <laughs> and it's pretty funny, um, but true. How do you keep looking like a silver fox? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that, that, that's me again. I don't get it. I, I look at myself and I'm going like, man, you're just old and wrinkly. Um, I, I, I try to maintain a fairly high level of fitness. It's just been my life. Um, I sleep better. I eat better. I feel better. Um, I've always abided by that, and I, I I refuse to give in to not doing that. I've just been a fit guy all my life, and looking back, I didn't really appreciate at times I was fit. Like I was a mm-hmm. fit dude. Now you, I have to come to terms with my body can only take so much. My famous sort of line is back in the day when I would be like training for speed in whatever race I was going to be racing. And, you know, you do like track repeats where you do like 200s and 400 repeats and you, you do pyramids where you go up and down, you know, different Ill- uh, intervals of it. And back in the day, you'd have that little voice going, man, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And I could power through the little voice and I would just, at times you end up being sick in the middle of the infield because you push yourself too far. Now at an older age, I'll do like repeats on my, my spin bike. And the little voice goes, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And I go, you're right. I don't. (laughs) And I don't do it. And I don't push as hard. And I, and I, I've come to terms with that because the one thing I've learned with age, if I can bestow anything on the listeners is that you have, getting old sucks. It really, truly sucks. 
but you have to come to terms with it. And you, you just have to change what your expectations are. And I, yeah, fitness to me just gave me a, a certain identity. It probably gave me confidence mm-hmm. um, outside of what I learned, you know, on the streets. And it's just something that my brothers were that way and I followed suit. And I, I would, I just love the fact that I feel healthy and, and fit. Uh, so the silver fox thing, I'm not going to give into that, but <laughs> staying fit. I, and I, I just think looking after yourself, being outside and fresh air and eating well. My, my wife, Marianne, is a fantastic cook. She feeds me very well. I try to cook. I, I can cook. I don't particularly like it. My challenge is I don't, food is just substance to me. Like I, I have an appreciation as I've gotten older to enjoy food. But when I was growing up, even in my 30s and 40s, food was just like, yeah, I don't, I'll eat anything just as long as I can keep moving and it's fuel for the machine. I don't right. care what it is. Whereas Marianne's a total foodie and she loves food and I abide by that and try to appease her with lovely meals and restaurants. And I'm like, sure, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a legacy that you want to leave behind? Um, I would love whenever my day comes, I would love people to go to my kids and say he was a good guy. Yeah, I like that. Oh, no. <laughs> Number four. <laughs> Number five. <laughs> Number five. Oh, no, I'm losing count now. <laughs> yeah. But one last question, um, which I will mention the name because um, it was Paul Wong. Mm. He wanted to ask this question to you because you asked this question to him. Mm. And the question is, what are you super grateful for in your life? Great partner in Marianne, great kids. Um, don't believe in a higher being, but somebody's looked after me and somebody's told me to turn right when I should have turned right. Thank you, Tracy, for sharing with us all your experiences, your wisdom, your knowledge, even just parenting advice. I felt that that was very helpful for me as a mother of three to, to, to listen to that, um, the whole aspect of how you incorporate parenting into, into your work life as well and how that has kind of crossed over. And yeah, I just, I, I, I love this conversation today and you are so open and candid about everything and I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much for sitting down with us and, and sharing a little piece of Tracy. You're welcome. I, I, it actually wasn't as painful as I thought it was going to be. Um, and as I'll just finish off by saying again, my door is always open and I'm usually around. And if if you want to formalize it, Sarah is obviously always here. She's my gatekeeper. If somebody wants to sit down and have tea with me, it's just get hold of Sarah. I'll make time for everybody and anybody. I love that. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you. The Rennie Podcast is a Rennie production and is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, all resources mentioned in the episode can be found on rennie.com.